Hi, I'm Adam Sobel, and this is Deep Convection. My guest today is Kate Marvel. Kate is still early in her career, compared to many of the people we've had on, but she's one of the most famous of them, and there's a good chance you've heard of her. Kate is well-known in the scientific community for her research, which she summarizes on her webpage, quote, I study climate forcings, things that affect the planet's energy balance, and feedbacks, processes that speed up or slow down warming. Our work here has shown that observational estimates of the Earth's sensitivity to greenhouse gases are probably biased low. Assuming climate changes will be small is not a very good idea. We've also shown that human influences are already apparent in global drought patterns, cloud cover, and in the timing and amount of regional rainfall, end quote. So I quoted from Kate's webpage, instead of trying to summarize her work in my own words, as I usually do, because I thought her summary was better than any I could come up with. And that gets me to the other major dimension of Kate's work and the reason she's famous outside the scientific community, that being her public communications on climate. Kate has been on TV, on radio, in print, and in countless online fora talking about the climate problem as a whole and many specific aspects of it. She translates the science, but more than that, Kate communicates the emotional reality of being a climate scientist who feels the urgency of global warming in a way that's honest and personal. She's clear, she's compelling, she has a lot to say, and she's funny. I think you'll hear all that in this conversation, and you'll understand why Kate has become such a prominent voice. In fact, I'd go so far as to say Kate is more outspoken, more visible, and more effective as a public communicator than any other climate scientist I can think of now or in the past who's still relatively junior, especially considering that she's been doing it for a few years now, so she started when she was even more junior. Most working scientists who become public communicators do so only later in their careers, once they have tenure and everything is kind of settled. Yours truly, for example. You might think that becoming famous for communicating effectively to large and broad audiences would help in one's scientific career, but that isn't necessarily the case. While many of her colleagues admire Kate's public persona, I certainly do, she has the distinct impression that some disapprove and that that has held her back professionally. So we talk at length about that and about how the bias in academia against popularizers is a special case of a more general problem, namely that our scientific institutions prioritize research far above all else and don't know how to value many other kinds of work that make the institutions themselves better and that increase the benefits that our research brings to the larger society. Of course, we also talk about how Kate got to where she is today, coming from theoretical physics with an education in the U.S. and the U.K. and a stint in South Africa along the way, before she made it into climate science, and then to the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies, down the block from Columbia University in New York City, where she remains. Kate is a phenomenon. She's really good at a lot of things, but one of them especially is talking, and I'm so happy she was willing to do that with me here. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Kate Marvel. Thanks so much, Kate. Thank you for having me. For doing this. Super excited to be here. Yeah, yeah, I know you do this a lot, and I'm honored that you are willing to do it here. What I'd like to do is start with your biography. I'm sure you've told it before, but not to me. <laughs> and probably not to some of our listeners. So 
So where do you come from? Where did Kate Marvel come from? I was born in California, um, moved around when I was a kid, um, lived in Japan for a little bit, lived in England for wait, a little wait, bit. Wait, wait. <laughs> wait how did all, how, why? My parents are academics and my dad would oh. just get jobs places and think they sounded interesting. So we would go for a little bit. What way, what field? My dad is in economics and my mom is in public policy. Okay, so you yeah. were born into this business. I was born into the business. All right. Yeah, there's some. <laughs> there's quite a lot of those if one yeah, asks around. Yeah. But um, my dad got a job at Ohio State. So I went to middle and high school in Columbus, Ohio. Okay. Yeah. And then I went back out west to Cal for college. And so when did science find you as a... So I pursuit. was, yeah, I was super into science as a really little kid because um, I was obsessed with Jane Goodall. I wanted uh -huh. to, you know, go and observe chimpanzee behavior in the wild. Okay. And then in high school, I decided that science was the worst and I hated it. I really hated physics because I was like, this is completely pointless. I don't care if the ball is going to roll down the inclined plane. <laughs> I don't want to calculate the banking coefficient. And there was so many projectiles, right? Like, I feel like in high school, like, it's always like uh -huh. somebody is shooting somebody with a rocket launcher. And that's interesting. And so it just totally turned me off. I hated science. Um, and I decided that I was going to be an actress, you know, that okay. thriving growth field of, of movie stars. So I went to college and decided that I was going to double major in drama and then something of substance. Um, Wait, this is Berkeley, you said? This is Berkeley, yeah. Okay. And I realized pretty quickly that there are a lot of people who want to be actors. And most of them are like way more talented than I am. Um, so that was a really oh. rude awakening. But also, um, I'd enrolled in, like at Berkeley, they have physical science requirements and biological science requirements, just like core requirements that you have to take. Yeah. And so I decided I want to get this over with because I hate science. So my first semester, I enrolled in, you know, astronomy for non-majors. Uh -huh. And I remember sitting there and thinking, like, this is amazing. Why, why am I not doing this? Like, there's a black hole at the center of the galaxy. What? You know, there was a big bang. Space time is curved. Like, what, what is this? And I remember thinking, like, oh, I can know more about this. I can know more about this if I stop being afraid of math, if I stop being afraid of science. So I actually switched my major to astrophysics. Actually, the astrophysics major is called astrophysics and physics. Um, uh -huh. And I double majored in physics. So my degree is in astrophysics and physics and physics. Wow. All right. So, <laughs> so in your Jane Goodall phase as a kid, like you never had a like a stars and planet. Were you one of those kids that like didn't know like how many planets there were in the solar system? And totally. And I still wow. don't really know how many planets there are in the solar yes, system. Yes, you do. Come on. I mean, Pluto. I don't know. I don't like I feel like you mentioned that Pluto's not a planet. And you get hate mail. So <laughs> no, it was just funny because for me, that started with the planet like that was my early fascination. So it's just interesting to me. People come to it from different ways. So you so you hated physics and then and this obviously the irony of this wasn't lost on you when you got Oh, completely. I mean, mostly I hated physics because I hated math because um, math just seemed like following a lot of rules for no reason. <laughs> and that's like not my core competency is following rules for no reason. And it, it just felt 
it, it felt completely useless. Like it just felt like, you know, prove that this weird triangle is actually the same as this other weird triangle. And I was like, mm. no, you know, who cares? Mm. And I think, you know, it's really easy to sort of get this concept of yourself as I am not a person who does math. I'm not a person who does science. I run into it a lot with my students now. You know, there's a lot of people who have just decided, like, I'm not a math person. And I think you probably, everybody probably is a math person if you come at it in the right way. Okay. <laughs> but I, mean, I, I was totally that person. It's funny to think about following rules. I mean, don't, I think for some people, the rules of math are like an escape from the irrational world into a world that makes sense. Definitely. But I saw it because it didn't make sense to me. Like I never really understood why that triangle was the same as that other triangle. Um, so, you know, I think if you get it immediately and yeah. if you do have that that escape, then it is really beautiful. It's really powerful. That's how I feel about it now. Yeah. But at the time, it just feels like, wow, going to math class is like dealing with like the TSA all day, you know, <laughs> like none of the rules make sense. And... <laughs> And there's also, you know, there's a way of presenting a lot of math and physics where it's sort of like it's trying to be interesting brain teasers. But, you know, what do you think about this? And then obviously your intuition is wrong. And then they come in and tell you the physics. But I, yeah. I, n I never felt like, oh, that's interesting. I thought, oh, you're calling me stupid. And so I'm sitting here. There's a whole bunch of rules that don't make sense. You're calling me stupid. And what are we doing? Like the triangles and the inclined planes? Like why, why would I need to know this? Okay, so by the time you get to be a physics major, you've gotten over this. You're seeing the beauty in math, presumably. Yeah. Because you had to do an awful lot of it to graduate. Mm -hmm. Yep. So with my astrophysics and physics and physics degree, I, I, I thought, you know, oh, I want to, I think I want to go to grad school, but um, there's all these like fancy scholarships. Maybe I'll apply for some of those. Um, so I ended up getting a fancy scholarship to go to Cambridge in the UK, the Gates Cambridge Scholarship. So thank you, Bill Gates, for okay. paying for my education. All right. And they have a master's program at Cambridge, which, of course, they don't call it a master's program because it dates from like the year 1200. And, you know, so what it's called call it? they call it part three of the mathematical tripos. Okay. So you put that on your CV and people are like, what does this mean? Like, what did you do right. for a year? It's, and like I'm like, it's, it's like you went to Hogwarts. Or totally. Um, no, Cambridge is like Hogwarts, but there's no yeah. magic and everybody's in Slytherin. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> Wait, but before we get, so did you have research experience before you did, you did as an undergrad? Did you get a try research? <laughs> so I worked for... Um, this professor who actually ended up winning the Nobel Prize um, no for cosmic microwave background Smoot? radiation. Smoot. And, you know, like, obviously, I now understand um, as a more senior person, but, you know, I had no idea what professors did all day. Yeah. Because I don't know what my parents did all day. Um, yeah. And, you know, he just had no time for undergrads, understandably. So I don't want to go too into this, but do you know what the cosmic microwave background is? Yes. So the... The very, very recently, there was a claim of detection of CMB polarization, basically mm. looking at mm. a, a polarized signal in the cosmic microwave background, which mm -hmm. is indicative of, of all these cool things. Yeah. Basically proves the inflationary theory of the um, early universe. Right. So the recent announcement, which was you know somewhat dubious, but was the result of a team that had been working on this with a very highly specialized instrument for a very, mm. very long time. My research project as an undergrad was to go on the roof of the Berkeley lab 
a, a building at Berkeley Lab and try to detect cosmic microwave background polarization. Wow. So it did not work. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I, I, I was luckier. There were some kids who were on a proton decay experiment uh. and their role was to sit there and basically see if the proton decayed. And the lifetime of a proton is like 10 to the 30 years. So it, it did not decay. <laughs> well, somehow this must have made more sense than you're making it sound like. Okay. Not really. I mean, we were, it was, it was Lord of the Flies. We were completely unsupervised. I had no idea what I was doing. And I, I, that so somebody just goes, Kate, go see if there's some cosmic microwave background on the roof. I mean, is that we, the beginning and end of it? We had some like broken equipment. Um, <laughs> but but it, it also made me realize that I was not cut out to do experimental physical science because I break yeah. everything I touch. Okay, but at least you got, so you got some idea of what research was. It didn't somehow didn't scare you out of going to grad school. You figured, well. Well, I wanted to go to grad school in theory. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, I wanted to go. And the, the reason that Cambridge appealed was you didn't have to take courses in things that at the time I thought were really boring, like mm. radiative transfer. Who cares about that? Well, you know, right now I care very much about radiative transfer, yeah. but I, you would get to dive right into taking quantum field theory and general relativity. So I, I took a bunch of courses. Um, basically, there's no assessment whatsoever until a bunch of exams at the end. Right, right. Um, so you have no idea how you're doing. Um, and then you just right. sit down and take this like miserable you know, four or five days of nothing but exams. And, and this was yeah. in astrophysics? It, it was, or, so or part three of the mathematical tripos oh, okay. in the Department of Applied Math and Theoretical Physics. So is this damped? It's damped, yeah. Oh, I see, I see, yeah. I see. What's my degree in? I, I, I don't know. Did you know. meet the atmospheric people there? A couple of them, yeah. Okay, but yeah. didn't get interested in it yet. So, I mean, the way damped is is organized. Um, they have this fancy new building and different pavilions so there's like a central core and then the high energy physics people are in one building and then the um, general relativity people are in another sort of pavilion of the building uh -huh. and then the, the fluids people are in another pavilion. And if you forget your ID, you get locked out on the outdoor bridge connecting the various pavilions. So you don't go to another pavilion unless you have to. <laughs> <laughs> I um, so I, I didn't really know most of those guys. So, um, okay, so you're in Cambridge and you do the masters that's not called the masters mm -hmm. and that and goes fine i guess you it does not go fine i go. am so burned out afterwards oh, okay and i actually end up doing really well on the exams good but cambridge is um there are not a lot of women in theoretical physics, and there are very few at Cambridge. I think there was only one female faculty member. Yeah, It's just kind of a weird environment. Yeah. So I was pretty burned out, and I ended up saying, okay, I'm just going to go and I'm going to you know, teach high school or something for, for a uh. couple of years and figure out what I want to do. I mean, at the time, did you feel that this decision was a result of the lack of women in the program, or is this in hindsight? I mean, at the time, I was just like, this culture is not for me. Um, I don't fit in. And I feel I feel constant pressure where mm. if I make a mistake, I've, you know, let down 51% of humanity. Did that just come from you or did you, was that communicated to you in some way? Oh, I mean, I have stories, <laughs> um, which I will not tell. Okay. But um, but no, I think there, there was definitely a wider culture of, uh. and, you know, independent of maybe related but not directly following from the 
the lack of diversity. There's also a culture of we're the smartest people in the world. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not the smartest person in the world, and I'm fine with that. Well, maybe you know, what, is, what does that even that mean? Well, right? maybe the people saying that aren't. I mean, exactly. Right. Um, so I was pretty burned out, and but I ended up. One of the professors said, "Oh, hey, I just started this um, this program in South Africa. Why don't you go teach there for a year?" So I went down to South Africa, and there was a program there called the African Institute for Mathematical Sciences, which was basically boot camp for people with first degrees in applied math, physics, computer science from various African universities. Mm -hmm. And it was boot camp to like get them up to the same level they would have been at had they gone to a well-resourced university. The year I was there, it was basically like, what happens when you get the smartest people on an entire continent together and put them in a room. So like, they weren't all South Africans from all over. They were from all over. Yeah. We had, I think, seven Sudanese women and yeah. um, eight p guys from Democratic Republic of Congo okay. and just such brilliant people. What city in South Africa? Musenberg, which is oh, outside okay. Cape Town. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, so what were you teaching? I was just sort of a jack of all trades TA. So they took courses in kind of a real grab bag of courses, a lot of programming. Um, David mm -hmm. McKay came down. He wrote Sustainable Energy Without the Hot Air. He's real big and he was real big in inference and, and Bayesian inference. He came down and taught statistics and um, signal processing. Mm -hmm really interesting and I, I was just sort of helping out TAing, helping people debug code and that was a pretty intense experience i loved it i loved working with those amazing brilliant people mm -hmm. but kind of at the end of the year i was like oh my god i don't know what i'm doing next year mm. you know i don't i don't have a plan you couldn't have just continued there or you didn't want to or i you know i i felt like you know it was the third year of the program and there were alumni of the first year of the program right. who wanted to to yeah. be TAs and yeah, they yeah. were better than I was. So I had nothing to do and the professor who had started it said, oh, why don't you just come back and do a PhD with me at Cambridge? So having forgotten everything <laughs> about what Cambridge was like, mm. uh, I was like, oh, I'm sure it's not that bad. So I went back. Mm. <laughs> And I did my PhD in a pretty, I don't want to say esoteric, but definitely esoteric aspect of theoretical cosmology, which, you know, it, it was trying to solve an important problem, which mm -hmm. is the cosmological constant problem. You know, the fact that mm -hmm. the universe appears to be expanding, there's some sort of anti-gravity force in right. the universe. Right. And, and, you know, theoretically, there should be some sort of zero point energy because uh -huh. quantum mechanics says that everything, nothing is ever quite still. There's always some zero yeah. point energy. But the problem is the difference between how much the universe is actually expanding, yeah. you know, the cosmological constant and the zero point energy is like 10 to the 120. Right, right. Um, so that's a problem. This is the thing that Einstein like made up that, that he didn't like and yeah. but now everybody thinks it's really there, but mm -hmm. yeah, okay. Yeah, but nobody has a convincing physical explanation for it. Okay. And I also do not have dark a, matter. Isn't that one of the evidence for dark matter? Or it's something? dark energy. Dark so energy. Okay, dark yeah, energy is the like anti-gravity thing. And dark matter is like there's stuff with gravitational pull oh, okay. in the universe, but we can't see it. And it's not normal. It's not baryonic. It's not made out of like protons and electrons. Yeah. Okay. So you do, you do fluids, right? You know what a soliton is? I know what a soliton is, yeah. yes. So my PhD was on instantons, which are basically solitons in space-time. Mm 
Okay. So to find a, an instanton, you take a metric, which is a solution of the equations of general relativity. So the, a metric, I, I'm, how deep in the weeds do I want to go? It's <laughs> up to you. <laughs> I mean, space-time is a pseudo-Romanian metric, which means basically it's not a real geometrical space because time is weird. Time only goes in one direction. Mm-hmm. So the metric signature is the three spatial dimensions get positive signs and time gets a negative sign. But if you let time go imaginary, so you you take the time dimension and you you rotate it into the imaginary plane, you can find solitons, so solutions of the, you know, the equations of motion. All Einstein's equations are equations of motion. So you find solitons in imaginary time and then you rotate them back to, to real time. Wow. And what they what they mean physically is you can you can essentially nucleate bubbles of new universe inside an existing universe where uh-huh. the constants of nature are different. And so the idea was, can you use this to try to start out with a universe where the cosmological constant is 120 orders of magnitude bigger, and um, reduce it to the value we see we see now. Wow. And you can do that, but the problem is that there's no there's no metric on the universes. There's no way to do statistics because we okay. don't really have any way of saying this universe is more likely than this other universe. Uh-huh. So you end up like doing this kind of hacky anthropic principle thing where you say, yeah. oh, we live in this universe because it's the universe that allows us to live. Right. And that's like deeply unsatisfying. It's always struck me as in the broader, I mean, I don't know this science at all, but the anthropic principle as I, I mean, it's always struck me as both hacky, but also kind of irrefutable. I mean. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like I mean, it's it circular, it's circular reasoning, right? But, you know, like that's not science. I don't explain anything, you know? Like, why are we here? We're here because we're here. Like, who cares? Right, yeah. So this is the really sci-fi stuff. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. I'm just thinking like how like, you know, you thought two triangles being the same was too abstract, and now you're. <laughs> I'm actually like because I don't have spatial reason. Like I, I'm terrible at like rotating objects with my brain or what or whatever. I'm not sure anybody um, has this kind of spatial reasoning. But or- I'm actually much better in higher dimensions because you know you're right. Like nobody can do that, and so right. if nobody can do that, then I'm okay with that level of extra- right. abstraction. It's like triangles. Like no, I hate triangles. Like I can't even tell left and right apart. I literally have to look at my <laughs> fingers and see the one that's making the L and that's left. And like wow. latitude and longitude, I get mixed up all the time. Like don't even get me started on like zonal and meridional and how I can never keep them straight. Uh. But higher dimensions, I think, is easier. <laughs> all right. Okay. So, but you did it. You got it. You wrote a thesis about this. I did, but we're not feeling that happy about it by the end again. Or, or yeah, what? I mean, I I was just like, what? The, who's this helping? You know. Um, yeah. And you know, again, that culture of, you know, we're all comparing ourselves to to Einstein and Feynman, mm. and if you're not a genius, what are you doing here? Mm. And you know, I was just kind of like, what well, what am I doing here? What good is this doing for anybody? It's well, interesting. This is something I'm super interested in is how people, how and when and people confront this question. So had it bothered you up to this point, like whether it was doing any good for anyone or? No, um, 
Because I actually am, and I still am, like a giant supporter of like totally out there blue skies research. Right. You know, I think we should go out there and we should study all the most random stuff in the world. Yeah. Because who knows where it's going to lead. And I think that's really exciting. My problem was that I just didn't see the field making progress. Uh. You know, cosmology, there's so much data, you know, going back to talking about Kobe, you know, we have these incredible measurements. We have this like beautiful snapshot of the early universe. We know how much dark energy there is. So Kobe was the the satellite um, program by your undergrad. The the Smoot satellite. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we, we have a lot of data, but the theory, you know, it just, I was really frustrated because for me, it felt like we were going around in circles mm. and I I didn't, I didn't feel like, oh, I can make a contribution mm. to understanding something. Yeah. You know, and I think I'm, you know, I'm glad people are still doing it. I'm yeah. glad that there are people thinking about things. I'm sure there have been advances since I've left, mm. but I, I did not see a way of breaking that log jam where I was involved. Yeah. And you know the culture is, the culture is gross in theoretical physics. You know I think because like Feynman was such a wanker, and people, <laughs> you know he did beautiful physics, but like he yeah. was a jerk. You know he yeah. used to like go to strip clubs and like pretend to do physics, like take napkins from the strip clubs and like take them home and like write physics on them mm-hmm. to like pretend like oh I get my best ideas at strip clubs. I'm like mm-hmm. that's just really sad. You know, like, I don't want to be like somebody like that. Mm. But, you know, there was this like attitude of like this arrogance and, you know, we're going to be just like fine men that I, I, that did not resonate with me. And mm. I, I saw, you know, the only woman in the department and I didn't want to be like her. I mm. didn't think she was very happy. She certainly wasn't treated very well. Mm. And I didn't, I didn't want to end up like that. Mm. So I didn't know what I wanted to do. I wanted to do something that used science for something more applied. And I got a fellowship at Stanford in the Center for International Security and Cooperation, um, which historically has had a bunch of physicists working on arms control. Mm. And I thought, I'll do arms control. Okay. Turns out to do arms control, you have to understand how bombs work. Yeah. And there are a lot of people who do that who are- Why? Well, because you you can't understand, you know, how to make sure nuclear weapons don't proliferate unless you understand how nuclear weapons work. And and, and that's why physicists have been really effective in disarmament and non-proliferation. And, you know, there were a bunch of people doing really, really great work. But I, I just am not that intellectually interested in how thermonuclear weapons work. So I did a little bit, I wrote this insane paper on using random matrix theory to model the electricity grid because I thought that might be policy relevant. Mm -hmm. I did a little bit of work on nuclear energy, good idea or bad. I still don't know. So wait, so you had a fellowship that kind of lets you do whatever you want. Let me do whatever I wanted. Exploring stuff. Yeah. Okay. You you figured out early on, I don't care about nuclear weapon. Mm -hmm. Well, not that I don't care about it. Just like. I mean, didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. Um, So I was just trying different things. Yeah. And then um, I remember I went into Steve Schneider's office as oh, for a okay. meeting with so him. So this is like mid two thousands ish. Okay, and so he's still around. Yeah. It was I think it was right before he passed. Yeah. 
And, you know, I introduced myself and I said, hey, like, I'm interested in physics and, you know, I feel like I'm pretty good at this stuff, but I don't know what to do. Like, do you have any suggestions? He just looked at me like, what are you, stupid? Like, you should be doing climate modeling. Right. Like, well, of course, you, but you knew that's what he did. So you must have known that was probably what he was going to say. I did, but I wanted to know, you know, from his perspective, like, is that the most useful thing to do? Yeah. You know, I'm not, I am not 100% sure. And I'm, I wonder what you would say, you know, if a student right, right. with, a physics background came to you and said, I want to do something that really matters. Like, what what would you tell them to do? That is a loaded and complicated question because, you know, I get why Schneider would have said climate modeling back then. I'm not as sure today as I might have been mm -hmm. at that time, but maybe we should get back to that because yeah, I want to ask you more about it too. <laughs> but yeah, I'm sure that Schneider had had others. I mean, physics refugees are common in mm -hmm. our field. I was a physics undergrad too. I didn't get as far as you did, but so I, yeah. I mean, this was a this was a softball for him. I I imagine. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then I needed to find somebody who would take me on as a postdoc, despite me having literally no skills oh, okay. or understanding of anything. So that wasn't Schneider. That wasn't Schneider. Okay. I talked Ken Caldera into uh, hiring me. Okay. And, you know, he was like really blunt. He was like, oh, we'll try you out. And if you turn out to be a lemon, we'll get rid of you. Um, really? Said it just like that? <laughs> okay. And, you know, Ken, Ken says it like it is. And so, but I, so I worked for him for about two months before I got an offer at Lawrence Livermore to do a postdoc at PCMDI. So I, I when I worked for Ken, um, he was interested in this question of, how many of how many high altitude wind turbines can you put in the atmosphere before you have significant like could you run out of wind basically right before you run out of mountains or whatever um well <laughs> he was talking about floating wind turbines floating wind yeah is that a so thing? i mean it was a thing back then um google had just acquired some startup wow. i don't think it went anywhere but the idea was to have these like kite wind turbines wow. so have these like giant kites with a tether that went to the ground and you know capture the the jet stream so i modified i think it was cam 3.5 at the time mm. i'd never seen a climate model before i was mm. like oh my god fortran what well what did you program in in astrophysics I didn't program anything. Oh, I okay. wrote pencil and paper. I see. Okay. All right. But, you know, I taught Python and C++. Mm. And I was just like, Fortran. But, um, you know, I just sat down and played with the model and learned a lot. And we wrote this, like, nuts paper where basically we, we put enough drag in the atmosphere. And it turns out that if you put uniformly distributed drag throughout the entire atmosphere you can actually like shut off baroclinicity. So you just you just get this giant meridional circulation that goes all the way to the pole. That must be a lot of turbines. Oh, it's like 10 to the fifth times total global power demand. It's okay. nuts. I mean, and so, you know, that was that was kind of the point of the paper that basically you get no real discernible climate characteristics. Like you don't really run out of wind until you shut down the circulation. Wow. But you did this in two months? Yeah, not exactly in two months. Like I worked on it a little bit after I went to Livermore, but still. But you know, I just I was really motivated. I worked really I hard because I wanted to I wanted to prove that I could be there. Right. Yeah. So 
that did was, it seem less i mean did it seem less uh hostile than the theoretical it's, physics it seemed less hostile and it was fun yeah. it was just like it's like playing sim city you know you you just well, you this take in a, particular yeah you take a climate model and you do some like nuts experiment that you couldn't do in the real world and that's super fun yeah so i i was kind of hooked I, I liked it a lot but then i went to pcmdi and i remember at pcmdi i was sitting in a seminar um somebody came to present their work and then after the seminar i was kind of bracing and people started asking questions mm. and they were questions I'd never heard anybody ask a question in a seminar before. Do you mean as opposed to a as, comment trying as to show that to they're a, smart? Exactly. As opposed yeah. to a, like an aggressive comment trying to tear down the speaker. Uh, and I was like, people are asking questions because they <laughs> want to know an answer. <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, it's funny because it's sad, but yeah. <laughs> So, so I, you know, I thought I thought that was great. I was like, "What? We can we can come to seminars and we can like learn from the people, and yeah. nobody cries in a seminar, and this is great." Okay. <laughs> and so, how long did you stay there? I was there until 2014. So a few years. A few years. And yeah. wait, so where were you work? Uh, wait, where were you working on there? I started working on detection and attribution because Ben Santer was there, ah. um, and he was nice to me. Uh-huh. Was he did he hire you or how what was your what was the situation? I don't so I think they had a they had funding for a postdoc. But usually those are associated with some individual It was associated with a project. Yeah. The project turned out was to analyze a bunch of data from simulations which were like high res simulations which were supposed uh. to be done by somebody else uh. and they didn't do the simulations so I was kind of floating around with nothing to do. And Ben Santer and Carl Taylor just were super nice and helped me and again like basically just let me do whatever I wanted yeah so what did you want so I wrote a paper about using like a computer vision algorithm to to analyze climate models mm. which I, it never occurred to me that someday people would actually be doing this mm. and then I worked on precipitation. So Celine mm. Bonfi and I mm. worked on a detection attribution study of precipitation like mm -hmm. in the zonal average. Like can you see the human influence in changing mm -hmm. precipitation? Yeah. 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 And then I started doing some work on clouds. So a detection attribution study of cloud changes. Right. And then I came here. Right. Okay. So detection attribution, I guess, happened because of Santer. I mean, mm -hmm. that's his. Was his, I mean, there are the people doing it. And, he's famous for it. Yeah. And so, okay. So you got, like, learned those methods. Of yeah. How to do that. You know, I I just asked him. You know, he he gave me a couple of references to read, and you know, something like EOF analysis. I was like, oh man, like I I know how to do you know linear algebra. Yeah. This is easy. I can do this. Yeah. And and it was fun. You know, I worked a lot with Celine Bonfi, who's just a lovely human being. I don't know this person. But... She's delightful. She's she's still at Livermore. Okay. And it's great. You know, the the macro environment is kind of weird because Livermore is a national lab, and there's people doing like yeah. stuff you don't want to ask about. Yeah. But the climate group there, at least when I was there, was just like really functional, really healthy, a bunch right. of really nice people. Yeah, I don't know how long the climate group goes back. I mean, the history of Livermore, as I understand it, is that, because it's funny because you were at Berkeley before, and so was I a long time ago, and that my understanding is that basically at, in the 60s when the students were protesting all the weapons work, 
the DOE said, we don't want to deal with this anymore. And they moved to deliver more where there mm-hmm. weren't any students so they could build all the nukes they wanted and, you know, wouldn't have to deal with that. But yeah. then it evolved to do as labs do to do all kinds of other stuff. And I don't know, they got a climate modeling group at some point. I think the climate modeling group came out of modeling nuclear fallout. Oh. I think that's why they had really good atmospheric scientists oh. and then the supercomputers. So it does it go back to like nuclear winter stuff in the 70s? Yeah. I didn't realize it, yeah. it goes back that far. Okay. Yeah. But now the climate group is like completely separate from from the nuclear group. Yeah. And yeah, it's just I I found it to be, you know, a very like supportive environment within this yeah. like kind of weird macro environment. Yeah. Great. Okay, so then how'd you end up here? Well, I got married and thank you. I mean, for you know, (laughs) eight years ago. (laughs) And um and my husband got a job at Pratt, which is an art school in Brooklyn. Right. And it's a tenure track position in at an art school, you know, for for somebody in the arts. Like that's that's the dream. Yeah. What's his art? He actually does science-inspired art. He used to run an organization called Guerrilla Science. So he teaches the science of light to to artists now at Pratt and does his own projects. But, you know, for him, there was like no, um, no question. You know, we were going. Yeah. And so I just had to come out here and hustle. Yeah. Try to hustle a job. And yeah. I talked to Gavin Schmidt yeah. at NASA and, you know, he was like, you seem fine. He brought me on as an associate research scientist. And again, I don't know how my career has always sort of ended up this way. Like, hey, you know, just do some science, do whatever you want. So I, I've only, I think, once had a position. And that's when I worked for Ken Caldera, where I actually had to do something for a project. Well, it's funny because, you know, I've, I've, I've talked to a lot of people while doing this podcast and for the older ones, it wasn't uncommon. You know, there was the old days when government funding was easy to get in the, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, maybe even 80s for some people. And, you know, and even today, sometimes it's like there, there has, you know, it, it's not so uncommon that you have PIs who have money and don't have to justify it that carefully and. You know, I think it's gotten much harder mm-hmm. to support people this way, but it's, I mean, people were presumably paying forward to you some, something that they'd experienced themselves. I mean, that they'd been able to have that freedom. I think so. It's a beautiful. You know, I think the only thing. reason I have anything resembling a career these days is people were really, really kind. You know, Ben and Carl at Livermore were just really supportive and you know gavin's been incredibly supportive letting me do like whatever i want and you know i feel like i have this like giant karma deficit that i really need to pay forward at some point well you'll have a chance but i mean i i I think it's from as somebody who's been in like both sides of this i think not that they weren't being i'm not saying people weren't kind but but it's sort of at its best how the system works right i mean they know that that's how you get the best results is if you hire somebody who's really capable and independently minded you don't want to mess them up. You'll get much better results out of them if you let them go with maybe a little bit of cheerleading or a little bit of guidance once in a while if they need it or they ask for it. But, you know, in the, this is this is how it's ideally how basic research is supposed to work. So I think they just looked at you and said, oh, she can probably do it. Let's, you know, what's the alternative? They have mm-hmm. to spend the money on somebody, right? Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, I don't know. 
But I remember it's funny because we didn't, you and I didn't meet until years later. But I remember when you came because Gavin sent some emails around saying, oh, "I have this great new person. She's done X, Y, and Z." And there was some amount of fanfare around you, at least coming from him. Oh, really? That's my recollection. That's good to know. Maybe it was just one email, <laughs> but I, I remember thinking I was after I read the email. I remember thinking I was supposed to have known who you were already, <laughs> and I did. And I, you know, but anyway. Right. So this is at NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies above mm -hmm. Tom Diner on 112th Street, right by Columbia University. So, and you were hired through my department, right? Through applied APAM. Physics and applied yeah. Math. Yeah. Right. Like many government labs, labs that uh, NASA gets hires people through the university as a way of avoiding soft money. Uh, you know, they can hire people on a, on a project basis by doing mm -hmm. it that way. So this was 20... 2014. 14. Yeah. Okay, so you've been here a while. And so, and am I right in remembering that you kept doing the detection and attribution? You have kept doing that? I've kept doing that. I've branched out. So I've, I did a lot of climate sensitivity work. So interested in climate feedbacks. GIS does, with, with the GIS model, they do a bajillion simulations. Right. And so there's just a lot of data. And yeah. if you can play with the data and right. get interesting results, right. you know, you can kind of work on whatever you want. So I worked on understanding what is attribution really? You know, if if you have a, a model with atmospheric chemistry and you let things interact, then if if you've got large interactions, then can you really attribute uh, an observed trend or change to forcing A or forcing B if forcing A interacts with forcing B. Okay, so um, I guess since you since you asked the question, maybe we don't usually, <laughs> I try not to do too much of this, but maybe we should take a minute and say what attribution actually is. Sure, yeah. I mean, it's just saying if detection is is something weird, you know, is, is something happening that is not explainable by our best understanding of internal climate variability. Mm -hmm. And attribution is, do we understand why? And, you know, does it accord with how we expect the climate system would respond to greenhouse gases or aerosols or ozone depletion? So in practice, it I mean, there's much more to it than this, but part of it is um, like the classic global warming attribution is it involves in part where you put the carbon dioxide in and OK, it gets warmer, which looks like what actually happened. And mm -hmm. if you don't put the carbon dioxide in, it doesn't. And so that, you know, it's, is a model based attribution yeah. statement, you know. Or, you know, you put the carbon dioxide in, the troposphere gets a lot warmer, the stratosphere gets a lot colder. Right, right. Um, so there's much know, more complicated much metrics more. of deciding mm -hmm. whether it matches the... Exactly. Yeah. But I got kind of interested in, you know, if, for example, ozone depletion is, you know, kind of maps onto greenhouse gases. You know, greenhouse gases cool the stratosphere, mm -hmm. a cooler stratosphere makes ozone depletion, like, more pronounced. Yeah. So, you know... If, if there is a change, do you attribute that to stratosphere, to ozone depletion, or do you attribute that to greenhouse gases when it's kind of both? Yeah. And so I got interested in using some of these, you know, model runs with single forcings to try to understand those nonlinearities. And that kind of brought me to this question of, well, we're trying to understand the climate, this hypothetical climate sensitivity to doubled carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. And we have, we've emitted a bunch of carbon dioxide and the planet's gotten a lot warmer. Mm. So can we use that to understand how warm it's going to get in the future? Yeah. And, you know, the complications of that are that 
you know, we've emitted things other than carbon dioxide. We've emitted aerosols. We've depleted ozone. We've changed the land surface. Yeah. And so, you know, to what extent are we actually comparing apples to apples? Yeah. So I, I did some work on that. I've done a lot of work on climate sensitivity. So basically, you know, yeah. how do we take this transient climate state we're in and use it to make some sort of inference about equilibrium? Yeah. And now I'm getting really interested in like machine learning and as, as a tool for learning, yeah. learning. And then, you know, how do we take some of the statistical results we've gotten and kind of recast them in a more, to me, intuitive Bayesian framework? We could talk about any of those things for a long time, but maybe we shouldn't. But, but I would characterize it as a sort of broad spectrum of questions that are very much in the mainstream core of like modern climate change science, but with branches into all the latest methodological, you know, developing new methodologies for, for doing these things. I mean, machine learning is, you know, super mm -hmm. hot and. I mean, it's just, it's just fancy stats. Yeah. But, it's, yeah. I, don't, I just don't know it. So I, you know, I, I, I feel like, we have this giant amount of data and those techniques help us sift through that giant amount of simulation data. Yeah, I get it. But we also have a physical understanding of how the climate system should work. Yeah. And I really I really like using machine learning, using statistics to kind of sift through that data to help us learn things about the physics. Right. So okay, but so what I want to get to now, because you're such a, you know, unique or almost unique person in this respect is so we, we maybe if we have time, we could come back and talk about these scientific topics. But I, I want to make sure we get to at what point you started doing your public communication. Like what? Because it, you know, at some point that became a thing. But when was that and how did that happen? And yeah. Well, I hope he doesn't listen to this. So I I knew that I wanted to, I needed to come to New York and I needed a job in New York. Yeah. And so I was like Googling anybody with power in the field in New York. Right. And somebody mentioned, oh, Gavin Schmidt's on Twitter all the time. Right. And I thought, okay, well, I will join Twitter and I will try to do like funny tweets in order to get attention. Wow. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's why I started on social media. Wow. Because the, the desperation of knowing that I had to move cross country without a job. Oh, well, okay. So I think that might be the only example in human history of something good coming out of Twitter. Uh, that's a little strong. <laughs> but so did it work? Did your funny tweets get Gavin I, attention? I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what did, but I got a job. <laughs> so. Okay. We, yeah. You, did, you didn't do the experiment correctly to no. answer that. No, it was question. not. It was not a well-designed experiment. There was a lot of desperation. <laughs> Well, you also showed up here and, you know, you know, and so on. So, yeah. But, you know, then like leaning into living in New York, there's so much happening here. The yeah. publishing industry is here. The, a lot of the media is here. Yeah. And so I started writing. I, I wrote a, a blog, you know, just a free, silly blog. I vaguely remember reading it on a couple of mm -hmm. occasions. Yeah. yeah. Um, I wrote something called... Um, you know, back when, do you remember the hiatus discourse? The, yes. So I wrote something like, I am so bored with the hiatus, just about yeah. how boring I thought all of that speculation was. Right. And that actually got, that was my first experience of getting picked up by climate deniers. So I just got this barrage of like, 
you're stupid, you know, you don't understand anything, you should die, which was like that escalated quickly from these dudes with weird hobbies. Right. Presumably even worse than the Cambridge physics. Uh, <sighs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know what's inside those guys' heads, but I don't really enjoy spending any time there. Yeah. And then um, I met an editor for this magazine, Nautilus, mm. and he asked, hey, will you write something about clouds? Mm. And I said, yeah, sure, fine. And so I wrote a magazine article, a popular magazine article about cloud feedback. Mm. And then I still don't know how this happened. I got a call saying, hey, will you give a TED talk about clouds? Mm. And I was like, well, there's so many people who know more about clouds than I do. Mm. And they're like, no, nah, like we think, we think you'll be good. Mm. So I went and I gave a TED talk. And so I knew you'd done this, but I didn't realize it was so early. I thought it was yeah. like after you were already like a master of all this stuff. I mean, it's 2017. So, you know, I'd been writing the blog for a while. You know, I'd written a couple published articles, but not not very much. You yeah. know, I was I was pretty much a nobody. And, you know, here I am on this like silly red circle. Uh, Steven Spielberg's in the audience. Al Gore's there. This is the big TED in California. It was in Vancouver, but yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Not one of the local ones. Yeah. Yeah. So that was that was terrifying. And, you know, I think if I if I had to do it again, I'd probably do exactly the same thing because they do a lot of editing. Like you are polished. And if yeah, you want to yeah. go off in a different direction, you are brought back. Mm. But you know, I there there are things that I think are more important to say. There are things that I would rather say now. Mm. But, you know, I'm not necessarily on that stage. And from that, you know, I things just started to to snowball a little bit. So yeah. I started writing for Scientific American. I wrote a couple mm. articles for On Being. And I just, I actually, I hate writing, but I love having written. That's probably a fairly you common know? sentiment. Um, I actually, I don't like stuff like this. I have to say, I mean, I like you, but Thank I don't, you, I don't like, I don't like interviews. I don't like, and I hate being on TV. I hate it. And yet it. you've done all of it so much. I, I say no to so much. I believe you. I, I but... say no to so much. You know, if there's a situation where, you know, I know that if I say no, they're going to ask somebody who doesn't know what they're talking about, even less than me, then yeah. I'll say yes. But I really try to say, you know, most of the time if somebody asks me to do something and I don't think I'm the best person, I really try to steer them to, to somebody better. Yeah. But I mean, okay. But we have to say if there's anybody, you know, listening who doesn't know who you are, that the amount of this stuff that you've done in the last few years is enormous compared to the average scientist. You're clearly very good at it. And that's unusual, especially for someone who's still relatively early in their career, but really for anyone in the field. So like, I guess what I'm interested in is, I mean, I know you, you sort of describe it as one of these things just sort of happened. That's sort of the way you just told it, but clearly it doesn't happen unless you're sort of there for it. I mean, so so the first thing is, like, so you started writing the blog. I remember reading that blog a couple of times. I don't think I read it a lot, but I read it enough to see that it's not the typical voice of a scientist. Like you had some amount of, there was some, a certain liberated quality. I mean, you know, you, were, you talked about things in a personal way. It was a different mode of discourse than, you know, scientific articles. I don't know where that came from, but it it's not something most people most scientists did, even in the age where there was blogs. Mm -hmm. 
I'm, you know, I'm wondering, you know, you you were a drama person in the beginning. Like, I was just wondering how that how you thought to do that. I mean, know? I think a lot of it came from being, you know, very openly being an imposter, you know, being new to the field, you know, coming into climate science from theoretical physics and not really knowing the jargon, not really knowing, you know, the important questions in the field, not really knowing anybody's names, you know, I'd never heard of Manabe. And I, I think, you know, I was probably the only postdoc in climate science who had, who had never heard of this guy, right? And that, I think, forces you to be good at eliciting information and it forces you to be good at communicating because you have to be able to say, okay, so what I hear you saying is blah, 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 blah. And I, I do think that having no idea what was going on for a really long time and kind of blundering my way around has has forced me to get good at figuring out how do we talk about what's going on. Yeah, you're too humble. I mean, you know, I mean, countless people have come in as postdocs from theoretical physics to this field, and not many have reacted to the situation in this particular way. I mean, I I get it. I mean, I I, I do much less than you, but I do also more than most of my colleagues. And and I mean, I hate being on TV too, you know, and so on. And writing is painful and all that. But at the same time, it's like it satisfies something that has to be there. And also, you have to be. I mean, I think being willing to being feeling lost and not knowing the field is one thing but but you didn't have a fear of exploring that however you're doing it in a public you know way no i mean i've always had kind of an inability to keep my mouth shut which <laughs> i think you know like has manifested throughout my entire life but but no i, I actually i do think that it is important i yeah. think that you know a from just a pure scientific perspective. Yeah. You know, the public pays our salaries, right? Like yeah. we get grants from NSF, DOE, yeah. NOAA. That's public money. And I think we do have an obligation to to yeah. talk about what we do in a way that you don't need to have a PhD to understand. I think that's really important. Yeah. I also think that, you know, I don't want unmitigated climate change. Yeah. I think that that's a bad idea. Let's not do that. And right. I, I I think anything that I can do to help stop that. Yeah. And I I'm not a policy person. Right. I don't know what the best policies are. Right. Because I haven't thought through unintended consequences. You yeah. know, I've got political opinions because I'm a human. Yeah. But that's not my skill set. Right. You know, my skill set is I can talk about the science yeah. in a way that I guess people like to listen to. Yeah. And I think that's important. Right. So you're describing a feeling of obligation. I mean, a feeling of public responsibility. Well, I mean, obligation makes it sound like it's horrible and you're doing it only because right. you have to. Right. I didn't to. mean it like that. Yeah. But, but you know, I, I, do think, I do think it is important. And I do think, you know, we all have an obligation and, and not all in the same way. You know, right. I don't think any people's communication strategies are going to be completely different. There are going to be some right. people who like to go out there and write Right. or or speak they're going to be some other people who you know are much better at making sure their data sets are clean and available right. and right. that's important too right so the, it's like this is a thing we should be doing as a field and i seem to be one of the people who's able to do it so i think so yeah yeah i mean because for you it's evolved i mean it almost is a whole second career i mean you almost could you know if you wanted to do it full time you could probably find a way to do that i, I know you don't know that's not your direction you want to go but but I want to talk about how it has worked 
to be this active because, you know, there is a small, perhaps growing, but still relatively small cohort of, you know, full-time working scientists who do this kind of thing. I think in my, to my knowledge, you are the most active and effective, the youngest of anybody. Cause this, the model is that a lot of us start doing it when we're old and, you know, whatever fear mm-hmm. we had uh, of doing it is not, not holding us back anymore because we don't really think about it. Cause we're, you know, kind of over the hill, but that, you know, you started doing it young and have you know, done it on a large scale and been very effective. But it's, I'm sure it's complicated, you yeah. know, the, how it fits in with a with the, w- the actual working science job. Yeah. I mean, I think time-wise, it does not take up that much time. Writing helps to clarify my ideas. Yeah. And and it's actually extremely helpful for the science. It feeds back on the research. It, it totally feeds back on the research. Yeah. Yeah, I see. yeah. And, you know, and it actually, you know, I don't, now that I'm writing a book, I actually have to sit down and think a lot about what I'm writing. But mm-hmm. when I was writing, you know, short articles, they're yeah. 800 words. You can sit down and bang that out in 45 minutes if you're feeling productive. Yeah. And not everybody can, but and, power to you. You know, I didn't, I didn't do that that often. Yeah. So I think people really overestimate yeah. the amount of time that yeah. it takes to do that. Yeah. I, but I didn't just mean that. I mean, the, I mean, the time is one thing. No, but I, th- I think that's important. I think it's yeah. important to say that, you know, there's this perception that you can either be a good researcher or a good communicator. Right. But you, you couldn't possibly be both. I don't agree with that. I right. don't think it's true. Well, I guess but that's what I'm getting at. I mean, do you feel that you've been battling that perception? I have, yeah. certainly. And I think it feeds into what I do perceive as a wider problem with the field. You know, the the typical path has been shut up until you get tenure. Yeah. I am not good at shutting up and I do not have tenure, nor am I on any path to eventually getting tenure. Mm. That's not something that I am able to do to be quiet and follow the rules until you get rewarded for following the rules. And then all of a sudden you can stop following the rules. Like I can't play that long game. (laughs) I'm just not capable of it. And I think it's a stupid game, honestly. Like I think. You know, I, I don't want the pendulum to swing too far back and we're forcing everybody to go out there and do things that they're uncomfortable with. I don't right. I don't want that. But I right. I think that talking about science, talking about climate is really undervalued. Yeah. And not, you know, not only do you not get credit for it, but I think there is a perception that you know, you are you are marked down for it. I hope things are changing. I think it's probably too late for me in my career, but there uh, are younger people coming up. You know, there are PhD students, there are postdocs who yeah. are really interested in, well, I'm doing this for a reason. I'm doing the science for a reason. I'm doing the science because it's important for society and I want to talk to society about it. Yeah. And I want things to improve for them. Yeah, so I mean, you know, there's this, I mean, this people say that, you know, Carl Sagan got flack from people for being, um, you know, a popularizer. And I mean, obviously he did have tenure and, you know, <laughs> it wasn't a problem for him. <laughs> but, you know, but that that was, there is a, a broad perception that this is a way things are that, I mean, because you said it's it's not valued. I think it's valued tremendously, but maybe not by academia. Oh, yeah. You know, you know so that's, I yeah, mean, you have lots of fans, but they're not the ones paying your salary. So, mm-hmm. so I mean, I'd like to think that it's 
changed a bit since Sagan's time, like that that's less so because there are a lot more people doing it to some degree or other now. But you're right that getting tenure first is the model. And, you know, that's why I wanted to ask about it because you're, I mean, I think I said to you at some point that you're like a, you're patient zero or something of this, <laughs> of this, of this approach. And, you know, I, I, I mean, it seems to me that the healthy view academia should take of these things. And I think we're struggling this with this on a lot of fronts. Communication is just one of them is that, you know, we know that the traditional academic career is based on research number one and maybe teaching number two in some places and, you know, grants and so all those normal things. But increasingly universities are at least paying lip service to the notion that there's other things we should be doing for the benefit of society. You know, there's the notion of the fourth purpose. I mean, this comes naturally in like medical school, you know, there's various. What are the other three purposes? I don't know, research, teaching, and <laughs> I don't know. What they are. I don't know why it's the fourth one. That's a good question. How embarrassing. But, you know, this idea that we should be out in the world doing stuff that matters, right? You know, and so communication is one of those. And, you know, I think how it's, how I perceive it when I do it is that deans and such love it and think it's great and want to take credit for it. I mean, they have media people, every university has media people who want their faculty to get in the media. I'm sure they love you. So if they have somebody who's in the media all the time, you're doing their job for them and that, you know, you're putting us in the news and that's great. But I, but you're, there's no question you're correct that it's not valued in the ways that are more, the most important when you're trying to build your career. And so this should be changing. And I think it is, but maybe too glacially. Like, have you gotten feedback to this effect or is this just, you know, that it's, that it's seen as counterproductive in some way, or is this just something in the woodwork that you don't know what else, you know? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I can't say, you know, I have applied to many, many, many faculty jobs and I have not gotten offered a faculty position. Um, mm. Now, you know, there's probably many, many reasons for that. And, you know, mm. I think academia is broken along several axes. You know, yeah. the fact that there are so many great people and so few permanent jobs. Yep. You know, I am not discounting, you know, the fact that when when something happens over and over and over, you know, you start thinking about what's wrong with me. It, it is definitely possible. And I think probably probable that there is, there's a lot wrong with me. Well, there's a lot wrong with a lot of people that... <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, it, I, I have years of data that yeah. basically say that this, you know, it, it certainly does not help you, or if it helps you, not not enough. Yeah. So you know, that's that's been, you know, that's been rough. But honestly, like, if the worst thing that happens to me in my life is I don't get a hard money position, you know, like worst things happen to many people, and you know, I'm pretty well, grateful. I mean, uh, I mean. You know, when you go and apply for a job somewhere, the fact that you have a major presence in the larger world, communicating on climate, should be a, it shouldn't be a negative. I think it should go without saying. So, I, yeah. I mean, who knows? I don't know what to say to students a lot of the time. Yeah, let's talk about that. You know, students. They ask you, right? They ask me, and you know, what do they ask? How can I do this? Or How can I be like you? Or will this hurt my career? I've been told that you know talking a lot will hurt my career. Well, oh, so somebody has already told students that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I say probably, but I think you should do it anyway. Mm. Yeah, because it's not just shooting your mouth off in the media that's important. It's, mm. you know, a lot of people are doing great work within their communities. People are doing organizing. People yeah. are 
figuring out what are the research questions that we should be asking that are important for for various groups of people who don't necessarily interact with the university all that often. That's really, really important work. But unless it's formalized and kind of run through this hierarchical university system, right. it it's not valued and it doesn't seem to matter. Right. You know, there's people who are the first in their families to go to college, people who yeah. come from underrepresented groups, like people who are yeah. representatives and and feel the need to conduct themselves in a way that, you know, that they know that they are role models and that they know they're being watched. That's not valued. Right. You know, outreach to various communities is is not valued. Right. And so I think there's this whole spectrum of really, really important things that make science better that are not valued. Right. And I think some of that is, you know, due to scarcity. Like people aren't their best and institutions aren't their best when they're operating under scarcity. Yeah. When there's a limited amount of funding and yeah. vicious competition for it, you know, yeah. we don't necessarily get the best incentives. Yeah. But I also think that there's a lot of silly hierarchy in academia that yeah. I've never really understood. You know, I never I, I don't understand why it's difficult for postdocs to apply for grants. You know, if if you have an idea you have an idea, yeah. you know, why do you need to funnel that through somebody with right. a fancier title? Right. So I, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what the best, what the best reforms might be, but I do, I do think that there's a lot of really important stuff that is not being valued. Right. Well, I mean, so there's a lot of things that are not being valued in the sense that somebody's doing something important and they're not getting enough credit for it. So that's one thing, but the thing with, somebody who's a highly visible communicator is that it's almost worse than that because you can't, you're not just not getting credit for it, but you don't have the option of just like not putting it on your CV. If you think that somebody's going to think, oh, Kate, like she's, you know, writing too many articles or mm -hmm. she's on TV too much. You, you don't have the option of just pretending it's not happening because it, you know, of, of letting yourself not get credit for it. You could actually, I mean, it's possible it could actually be a negative viewed as a negative, and you can't, yeah, do anything about it because you're famous, right? So, <laughs> well, I mean, mega quotes there. Well, okay, <laughs> but I mean, compared to most of us, so I mean, so I want to talk about another aspect of this, and this is not just a question of, you know, how it affects people's careers, but also, like, what you see as, and and if this has changed at all in your time, your years doing this now, the role of scientists what it is and what it should be in the climate debate because we have you know a highly politicized societal problem where so just to spill my sort of biases on it a little bit like for many many years you had a situation where scientists whether old ones or young ones were kind of the main and maybe to some extent still are you know the 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 most visible voices on it and now it's a bit diversified, right? There are climate community, there's activists who are very, you know, Greta Thunberg and all the others who are, you know, famous people on their own, they're not scientists. And that's probably how it should be, right? I mean, mm -hmm. if we're saying like, we know enough to act, then it shouldn't always have to be scientists who are the ones talking about it because it's now a problem for everybody, right? If we're mm -hmm. gonna, and, and so that sometimes makes me think twice about opening my mouth sometimes because I think, well, maybe it shouldn't be me, you know, not just whether I want to do it or not or whether I have the best things to say, but maybe on some grounds, maybe 
we shouldn't be because then if we're if it's always us talking about it then no matter what we say like there's always a threat that it, it's get put on the science page you mm -hmm. know of the newspaper and maybe that so like do you think about this one has it do you have a i think about it all the time yeah. um you know i think climate change is not a scientific issue you know it is informed by science yeah we study it we understand it yeah but it is touching every aspect of life right. and therefore everybody you know has something to say about it and and i actually i think that's great that there's this understanding now that oh hey it doesn't just need to be scientists talking i i really welcome that because i also feel like i don't know if you perceive this but until i don't know like 2018 mm. the only thing you were allowed to talk about was is this real or is every scientist yeah. part of a giant conspiracy to lie about everything right and that's so boring, right? It's it's such a boring story, you know, because right. yes, it's real. Like, okay, some people say it's not real. They're wrong. Moving right. on. And now I think the media, thank God, has really moved on. Yeah. And now, you know, they're right. asking they're asking questions that we are not qualified to answer. And right. that's a good thing. That's yeah. a really good thing. So I, I have a bunch of journalists asking me, you know, to talk about COP. Like, I don't know anything about COP. Yeah. I have no idea what's going on. You know, is this yeah. is any of this going to matter? I don't know. Yeah. You know, but they're like, oh, India pledged to go net zero by 2030. I don't know. I, you think I know anything about Indian politics? Like, all right. I now have kind of built a network of people in different fields, all connected to climate, where yeah. I now feel able when somebody asks me to comment about something that I don't understand, I, I feel really able to be like, no, you should talk to her instead. Right. You know, that's also really useful because it, it removes the pressure from me. Like, I don't have to know everything. Like, yeah. And I don't know everything. There's other people who are better at this. But But so what is our role then? I mean, because... One one answer could be, well, you know, our role should just be to talk about scientific questions. So when there's a specific, you know, scientific issue, you know, what happened with this hurricane, you know, whatever. But I somehow suspect that that isn't your actual view because, you know, you're not limited to that, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, science is still at the root of this issue somehow. So, and we, so we are people who know a lot about it. And so maybe we should still have some kind of engagement that's beyond that of the average person but yet we don't want to turn it into a science question all the time because i think it actually you know if it's always us talking about it another way of putting what you just said is that if it's always scientists then it almost invites it to be about you know is this a hoax or not you know mm -hmm. because it's like we're, that's the turf that we're you know so like what's the right you know bailiwick for us I think there there are different ways that we can be useful. And I think one person cannot do all of these things. Right, sure. So, you know, when a hurricane hits and yeah. somebody wants context, like they should talk to you, they should talk to Susanna, they yeah, should talk to Deanna yeah. Hence. And that's really, really useful, being able to provide that context. I think, you know, there are a lot of folks doing really good work on understanding, you know, communities are saying, where are the sea levels going to rise? And what are the implications for different communities? You know, so climate gentrification, how we design the policy response, how we design an activist response to that. I think there are scientists who can really usefully work with people to generate those questions and answer those questions. I think that's a really useful role. I really like to talk about science to people who don't see themselves as science people. Mm. I think I really enjoy saying, hey, 
here's what the science says. And it might look cold and impersonal and not for you because yeah. you, you're scared of equations. Yeah. I understand. I used to be scared of equations too. Yeah. But it's beautiful. I mean, there's a major theme in at least a lot of your writing and some of the other stuff that's about our emotional response to the climate problem as humans. You know, I think I and many of your, you know, readers find this very powerful. I guess there's other people, right, you know, saying those things too who aren't working scientists. But the fact that you are one makes it different, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it can be difficult to thread the needle because, and, and, and the way that I do that is I say, I don't talk about things that I don't, know anything about so you know i have i have personal political opinions i have yeah. personal policy preferences yeah. pass the build back better act already like come on but yeah. you know in terms of what is the optimal policy response to climate change like yeah. i don't know what i'm talking about yeah i know me neither. and and i feel really comfortable in saying i'm not going to talk about that not because i'm scared of political blowback not because i'm scared to speak out but because i am scared of supporting a policy response that has unintended consequences yeah, yeah. because I haven't thought through it. But at the same time, I think there is this model, which is a completely wrong and flawed model yeah. of scientists Good. as we are we are unemotional science robots. Right. We don't feel anything and and we should just provide robotic science advice as if that's a thing that could ever exist. Yeah. You know, and and we're supposed to pretend we don't have emotions. Like that doesn't seem honest to me. Right. Like, I don't feel like lying about having feelings makes you a more honest scientist. Right. And so I just try to be open about it. I try to say, you know, science might seem alienating for a lot of people. Right. Because, you know, you do need years of training to understand it, to understand the governing, you know, the primitive equations of a climate model. Right. You know, you, you need to at least understand multivariate calculus. Right. Not everybody enjoys that. Not everybody has that. But there is a certain beauty in that. Right. The world is describable. The world is interlocking. Yeah. And very simple principles allow us to yeah. predict the future. Like, that's amazing. And then, you know, looking at climate change, I think... There's been a lot of talk about what's the proper emotional response to climate change. Is yeah. it, should we be really scared? Should we be grieving and really sad? Should we be really angry? You know, and, and I, I, I really resist being pushed into any particular category yeah. because I don't feel one thing. Yeah. There's space for everything. Yeah, totally. No, I, I the whole thing of you have to be positive, I, I can't. First of all, I'm not good at that, but also, like, I don't know who came up with that. It seems to me like oh, there was a period where everybody was saying you have to be positive or else people aren't going to, like, where did that come from? I just don't believe that at all. Negative emotions are incredibly powerful in so mm -hmm. many aspects of life. Yeah. I mean, my sense is, you know, just get on with it. You know, we know what to do. Let's do it. But in all that you just said, I mean, there's partly what you're saying is, is you're describing just communicating authentically as a human being, but there's also a project of conscious humanization of science, right? That you're intentionally doing. I think so. I mean, I think writers write about stuff that's interesting to them, you know? And yeah. I write about science because science is interesting to me. So it's not, you know, this 
again, I'm terrible at the long game. So it's not this, this long project of, oh, I'm gonna make people see scientists as human. It's just, no. I'm a human and I'm really interested in science. No, but you just described a, a, a conscious intent of, you know, connecting with someone who, you know, a, a nominal reader or listener who thinks they're not interested in science and, mm -hmm. and trying to make them realize that it isn't exactly what they think it is. It has a kind of yeah. humanity that they maybe yeah. didn't see in it. I think so. Yeah. So while we're here and I haven't quite lost you yet, can we talk about your book project or is it premature sure. to do that yeah no the, since it's on these themes yep, as i understand yeah <laughs> so yeah um, i'm writing a book it is terrifying books have a lot of words mm. but i'm writing a book called human nature which is climate science told through nine different emotions so nine nine Okay. possibly less, possibly more. We'll see how it evolves. Yeah. But we start out with wonder, you know, the fact that mm -hmm. the universe is knowable at all. Like that's incredible. Yeah. You know, if there, there's certain concepts that we work with every day that if you think about it long enough, it'll blow your mind, right? Like entropy. Yeah, that's that's nuts. One. Yeah. It's, it's both the most obvious thing in the world and the most, most mind-blowing thing in the world, right? That there are many more ways to make a mess than and there's only one way to be neat. You know, and you know, the fact that the future is knowable, that's, mm. that's the closest we will ever get to magic, I think. Mm. You know, you take a differential equation with mm. a physical basis and that tells you how to evolve something forward into the future. Mm. So, you know, I think that, that really does give me a sense of wonder and awe. And then, you know, talk about attribution, how we know that humans are, are causing climate change. That's Wait, what's the emotion that goes with that? Shame. Oh. Or guilt. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, talking about climate change and, and what it actually means, extreme events, that's fear. Okay. Then looking at the future and kind of how the future is uncertain, but those uncertainties were weaponized to, to deny climate change for so long. Uh, that makes me angry. Good. <laughs> so that's anger. And then, you know, there are things which we've already lost and we will lose. And, and that's sadness or grief. Yeah. And then there's a lot we don't know. You know, science left to be done, things that we are finding out now. And that's surprise. Yeah. Oh, and then pride. So that's my deliberate climate modification chapter. Uh, Geoengineering. Mm-hmm. And carbon dioxide removal. And I, I kind of, I haven't written that yet, but I want to end with, it's possible, at least theoretically possible, that we could end up with a healthy sense of pride and a job well done. And then hope, which I have a very complicated relationship with. Yeah, I've read some of your <laughs> thoughts on that. And then love, finally. Oh. which is the only reason any of this matters. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I know you're not supposed to ask this, like asking the grad school student, you know, when are they, but like, what's the plan trajectory? When are we going to be able to read this? If everything goes well. Hopefully 2023. Good. That's yeah. pretty, that's pretty yeah. reasonably tight timeline, actually, because yeah. it takes a while, even yeah. once you've written it, to get it done and bound up. And mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's pretty tight turnaround got yeah. four chapters already you've got four chapters oh you're mm. doing great <sighs> yeah it's been so hard <laughs> well not as hard as it could be for some people hard would be you know if you said i haven't done any chapters i didn't say i had four good chapters oh come on <laughs> 
It's, it's actually been really interesting to research the book. I'm not doing a lot of deep research, but I am, you know, when I write about something, I'm like, oh, hey, do I actually understand why CO2 yeah. cools the atmosphere? And then yeah. I have to go and noodle around and build myself a simple climate yeah. model. Yeah, well, that's how it and feeds back on the research. Right? Exactly. I mean, you, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I did go down on a tangent about the Little Ice Age and witch burning. Okay. Did you, did you know that the ramp up of witch hunts and, and witch burning really coincides with weird weather from the Little Ice Age I in did Europe? Not, yeah. No. When wait, that was when was that? The 17th, 17th century. century. There was a king of England who was just a real weirdo, and he'd gotten caught in a storm at sea, and it just messed him up, and he blamed witches, and so he actually remains the only reigning monarch of the UK to ever publish a peer-reviewed scientific treatise. So he published a treatise on how to detect witches. Wow. Mm -hmm. Obama published something, right, in a peer-reviewed journal while he was president. I is, is he a British monarch? No, but okay. it's cl my closest analog. I, I mean, I just remember when that happened because it was all, you know, all the academics already loved him because he was mm -hmm. like one of us. But then he did that, and I was like, oh, my God, this guy, you know, the president wrote a peer review. I feel like that would solve a lot of the UK's problems if they just let him be king afterwards. Yeah, anyway, Obama's <laughs> paper was less disturbing than the witch burning, but I can't remember what it was about. So is there, I know you got to go. Is there anything else we should have mentioned that we didn't? No, it's been lovely. Thank you. Thank you, Kate. I'm honored that you agreed to do this. Yeah. Anytime. Thanks again. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Okay, that was great, right? Among the many interesting things we learned about Kate there is that she's writing a book, Human Nature, which will explain the climate problem in terms of nine different emotions. So you heard it here first, maybe, and look for that in 2023. In the meantime, so happy to be able to have had that conversation with the amazing Kate Marvel. My co-creator and creative director is Melanie Bielli, and our editing and audio post-production are by Duotone Audio Group, where our editor and post-producer is Stefan Wiener, and our audio engineer is Livia Wicks. My creative consultant and spiritual advisor is Minnie Jardine, and our original music is by Eli Sobel. I'm Adam Sobel. This is Deep Convection. <laughs>